You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up, the Bank of England follows the US Fed and the European Central Bank by delivering a huge rate hike. But will it be enough to curb inflation? Also ahead on today's programme, Monocle's Andrew Miller examines the dramatic return of Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu. Even by the standards of a region renowned for unlikely comebacks from apparently terminal positions, it is quite the resurgence. A less obdurately, some might say boneheadedly, determined figure would have hung it up long ago. He's back! Plus, we'll get the headlines from Chile, and then Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will bring us his global countdown. Fernando. Hello, Marcus. Today I'll give you a lesson in Gabonese music. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. We have had a big announcement from the Bank of England in the last 90 seconds. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts has the deal details. How much can you tell us now, Ewan? Marcus, the UK Central Bank has just delivered its biggest rate increase in 33 years, rising US and UK interest rates from 2.25% to 3%. There was a bit of good news. Uh, the Bank of England says that peak interest rate is likely to be lower than that implied by the markets. So the bank uh, continuing its fight against red-hot inflation prices remember in the UK now 10% higher than they were a year ago. Governor Andrew Bailey will be answering questions at his press conference in half an hour. The lot of attention will be on the Bank of England's quarterly economic forecast, which we're also going to get today. So much has happened since August when the bank said that inflation could hit 13% this year. Since then we've had a new Prime Minister, a disastrous mini-budget, a massive package of energy support for households and for businesses uh, and another new Prime Minister. Uh, yesterday, the world's most important central bank also raised US interest rates by 0.75%. That took them to a range of 375 to 4%. Fed Chair Jay Powell leaving little doubt that he's prepared to push rates as high as needed to crack down on the US inflation problem. They did signal that the pace of rate rises could start to slow uh, from next month. Remember that only back in March, US rates were near zero. It has been an incredibly aggressive program of tightening monetary policy. And so far, the US economy has shown quite a lot of resilience. Those rising borrow costs have slowed the housing market but inflation remains stubbornly stuck near 40-year highs. How much have we been hearing from the market so far? I would imagine that they knew to expect this. Yeah, well, this was pretty much in line with uh, forecasts that economists were widely expecting the UK to hike by 75 basis points, uh, three quarters of a percentage point. Uh, We know that uh, central banks around the world have all been embarking on uh, similar, we call them jumbo hikes. Uh, There's been really uh, a program of uh, trying to catch up. They've been very much behind the curve on inflation, uh, which uh, got out of control uh, about a year ago, uh, because they were saying they were maintaining for a long time that inflation was going to be uh, transitory. And we know that it's been uh, anything but. And uh, we also had some interesting data on uh, the U.S. economy this week showing that the job market 
is still very hot. Job uh, openings in the US rising when economists were expecting them to drop. They thought they would drop below 10 million. And in fact, they've risen uh, nearer to 11 million. So the US labor market still uh, creating jobs. And that is an issue for the Fed because, of course, if the labor market remains very tight, that puts upward pressure on wages. And that also feeds into the inflation story. So certainly on the labor market in the US, uh, not really big signs of it tight, of it uh, uh, coming uh, much uh, easier than before. Thank you very much for this update. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. So why are central banks continuing to hike rates and what are they hoping to achieve? Vicky Price is an economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service and she joins us now. Vicky, it's, it's been a historic announcement, the biggest interest rate rise since 1989. How crucial is it that the Bank of England decided to increase interest rates like this? In a way, they were following what the markets were expecting them to do, and I think that's, uh, that's crucial given all the problems that we have had with markets uh, recently, uh, not really necessarily trusting sort of government policy. So we had a bit of volatility uh, in the pound and also, of course, in, in uh, long-term yields. But what they're hoping to do is, is to slow the economies down, if you like, but also influence inflationary expectations. So if people think that uh, the central banks are really on top of it, they will then readjust where they expect maybe the, the inflation rate to be in a year or two and adjust their own expectations accordingly, including, of course, wage demand, so that the whole inflation issue doesn't become so embedded that we can't actually get out of it. There is obviously a downside to this decision. This, this interest rate rise will hit hard people with large loans and mortgages. How dangerous is that? Oh, it's pretty uh, important. I think quite a lot of people had relied for quite some time on very low interest rates, in fact, near zero interest rates, uh, which were fueling, of course, house price uh, increases. So we had house price boom happening sort of across the world in the UK as well. So we've seen it actually, interestingly enough, in Europe and in the US, where house prices went up very significantly. So uh, there's no doubt the housing market is cooling. It's cooling in the US very significantly. It's cooling in the UK already. And we probably see a lot of that happening elsewhere. So that's one. Uh, the other one is, of course, that if you add this interest rate increase to, uh, in the UK in particular, possible cuts in public spending and increases in taxes, then what you might find is that if benefits don't go up in line with inflation, for example, and people, particularly the lower end of the income scale, find themselves really penalized both ways, that you might find the economy actually slowing down even more than perhaps has been anticipated. And I think that's Interesting at right now because we need to see the the, the growth forecast of um, the Bank of England, which I haven't seen, I have to admit, yet, because all we've got so far is interest rates uh, increase announced. What kind of scenarios do you think the Bank of England was considering when it was making this decision? I'm, I'm looking at latest reports, for example, from Turkey, where the inflation has just topped 85%. What would have happened in the UK if the Bank of England hadn't acted? Well, the, the thing to remember, of course, is that the Bank of England intervened uh, just a few weeks ago to try and calm the markets down. Because, uh, of course, because of the mini-budget that we had on the 23rd of September... Uh, the market got very worried that our debt was going to be rising without any prospect of it falling as a percentage of GDP in the medium term because there was no funding for those tax cuts that were announced then. A lot of that has been reversed. So what the Bank of England will be looking at now, in particular, is what what is the, the, the fiscal stance? What is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, our Finance Minister, um, planning to do in terms of uh, his own uh, tightening, if you like? 
So they will have borne that in mind because, uh, you know, you can have too much tightening if you don't watch it. So balancing it between what they uh, think they need to do, that's the Bank of England, to control inflation, and what uh, the fiscal side, the Chancellor, and now the new Chancellor, of course, and new Prime Minister, uh, are concerned about in, in the sense of uh, trying to rein in fiscal, the fiscal uh, budget as much as they possibly can, um, well, that could, of course, lead to a very substantial slow down in the economy. So the words that will come out of the Bank of England later today are going to matter, just as it did yesterday when Joe Powell uh, in the Fed uh, made, gave his conference speech. How far do we really still think, given everything else, that interest rates are going to be increasing in the future? And if they do anything to calm the markets, in the sense of saying, yes, of course, we are now on top of inflation, possibly, uh, we're not going to raise rates too much in the future because we just wait and see what's happening to the economy. If it's slowing it down by itself, what's the point of raising interest rates quite significantly? It seems to take quite a lot of time anyway to have any serious impact. What do you expect yourself, Vicky, from the rest of 2022? Will we be seeing more interest rate hikes across the world? Uh, yes, for the moment we, we will. I mean, what you've seen, though, is that uh, there are some signs that perhaps inflation is plateauing. Uh, of course, we don't know what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine. Things might escalate. But we have seen gas prices come down very significantly. We've seen oil prices. Yes, we have the OPEC production cuts. But nevertheless, what you've also got uh, is that um, China isn't really growing particularly fast, and, and therefore demand for oil isn't that great. So prices are coming down or have come down. And see what happens in the next few weeks on that. Uh, and you've also got food prices, which have been coming down now for the last, six months, the international food prices. is not reflected yet in what people are paying. And also, of course, firms, although they intend to raise prices, know that there, is, there are consumers out there who are affected by the cost of living crisis. They won't be able to go out and spend. So, the, so, so there are some positive signs there. But on the negative, all those things might indeed encourage the consumers to, to really just stop spending. And if that is the case, then there are problems for growth, problems for individual firms that depend on that custom, if you like come to them and and really uh, problems with the economy as a whole. So the general expectation is that the UK will fall into recession over the next year. Mm, thank you very much for your insights, Vicky. That was The Economist, Vicky Price. And now here is Monocle24's Carlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Seoul says North Korea has fired yet another intercontinental ballistic missile, but it failed mid-flight. It is Pyongyang's seventh launch this year, and it comes amid concerns that it will attempt to test a nuclear weapon. Tensions on the Korean peninsula have escalated in recent days. A deal has been reached to end the Ethiopian civil war, with combatants agreeing to halt the two-year conflict. Fighting between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan forces have left tens of thousands dead and displaced millions. The African Union has called the peace deal a new dawn. Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has told truckers protesting against the outcome of Sunday's election to clear the roads and move elsewhere. Bolsonaro added that blocking highways is not a legitimate form of protest and has encouraged people to choose other ways of demonstrating. And it's been revealed that another large piece of Chinese space junk is expected to fall to Earth in the coming days. It is not known where the body of the Chinese Long March 5B rocket will land, but space scientists have said the falling debris poses very little risk to the public. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. We head to Israel now, where Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be on course to lead the most right-wing government in the nation's history. Monocle's Andrew 
Müller explores his dramatic political comeback. He's back. Well, probably. Israeli elections being Israeli elections and Israeli politics being Israeli politics, the narrator of this explainer would be greatly obliged to you, the listener, if you'd hear all this with an implied refrain of as we go to air or at time of writing or whatever hedge against events you prefer. But it would seem that, following Israel's fifth general election in a little over three years, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be Prime Minister of Israel again. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking a fourth term in office. Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu appears headed for an historic fifth term. <laughs> election officials say voter turnout was at its highest level in 23 years. Even by the standards of a region renowned for unlikely comebacks from apparently terminal positions, it is quite the resurgence. A less obdurately, some might say boneheadedly, determined figure would have hung it up long ago. Among the factors mitigating against Netanyahu's return to the Prime Minister's residence appeared to be the following. He is 73 years old, he has already served five terms as Prime Minister, he is still on the hook on corruption charges which could see him imprisoned, and as a consequence of all the above, an electorally forbidding plurality of his fellow citizens are entirely sick of him. And yet... Here we appear to be. Exit polls and early returns suggest that Netanyahu's conservative bloc will command a thinnish but workable majority in the Knesset, perhaps 64 or 65 of 120 seats. A victory which, if its slenderness is confirmed, could well tee up yet another general election in reasonably short order. Any especially stressed Israeli cephologists craving a richly deserved holiday would be well advised to take it in the next few weeks before things fall to pieces yet again. Israeli governments are by definition coalition governments. Not once since the state's foundation in 1948 has a single party won an absolute majority. <laughs> These arrangements are frequently riotously unwieldy, which is why they collapse so often. Israel's most recent government is an extreme but instructive example. Even to corral a perilously tiny majority, it had to not only get eight parties to sign on, but to persuade two prime ministers to take turns at the top job. Ironically, given the consequences of this coalition's collapse in June, pretty much the only point of agreement binding it together was a shared dislike of Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu's likely coalition will not be as diverse, but could plausibly be at least as rancorous and unworkable. The key partner for Netanyahu's Likud party will be the religious Zionists ticket, about whom it may be fairly said that there is a clue in the name. The religious Zionists appear on course to double their vote from last time out, from a little over 5% to a little more than 10%. 
That large global constituency which has long found Benjamin Netanyahu quite the belligerent nationalist has not seen anything yet. One of the stars of the religious Zionist bloc is Itamar Ben-Gvir, leader of one of its component parties, Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power. Ben-Gvir has been convicted for incitement to racial hatred. As a teenager facing national service, he was rejected by the Israel Defense Forces due to his political crankery. Indeed, one former IDF chief of staff, Dan Halutz, recently cautioned that Ben-Gvir's ideas could sow the seeds of civil war. Ben-Gvir has, at the least, been an admirer of Mir Kahan, an infamously ultra-hardcore conservative kook who, during his time in the Knesset in the 1980s, would often speak to an empty house as his disgusted fellow MKs walked out. Until really quite recently, Ben-Gvir hung on the wall of his home in the West Bank settlement of Kiryat Arba a portrait of Baruch Goldstein, a lunatic who in 1994 shot dead 29 Palestinians worshipping at the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron. During this election campaign, Ben-Gvir found himself having to clarify that he no longer supported expelling his fellow Israeli citizens who are also Arabs. Ben-Gvir at least attempted a measure of conciliation at his election night party. Addressing those who did not vote for him, he declared, we're all brothers. It was an apt choice of phrase. The few women permitted to be present were all standing at the back. All of which is by way of noting that even Benjamin Netanyahu might find governing in any sort of cahoots with Itamar Ben-Gvir something of a handful. It is not yet certain that he will have to. Netanyahu is nothing if not a wily operator, ditto Israel's president Isaac Herzog. Both will be aware that awarding cabinet posts to someone with Ben-Gvir's inclinations will spook Israel's staunchest ally, the United States. President Biden... It was and is a great friend of Israel, is a great supporter. And its newer ones, the Arab countries which Netanyahu successfully courted during his previous term. Before a vote was cast in this election, there was a consensus that it was essentially a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu. This was not an innovative analysis. Much the same had been said about the four previous elections since 2019 and might well be said again about another election a few months from now. For the moment, Netanyahu has trapped himself and his country in a corner with the toxic extremist right. He doesn't need to look far to see who led it there. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew, thank you. And you can hear much more from Andrew and the Foreign Desk team on Saturday at midday London time. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It is 21.19 in Tokyo, 12.19 here in London and 8.19 a.m. in Boston. Now, we have been paying close attention to the Brazilian election over the past week, but there has also been lots going on in Chile. Monaco's Latin America Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott joins me with more. Lucinda, welcome to the programme. Morning, Marcus. Let's start by looking at the situation with the country's leftist leader, Gabriel Boric. He has seen his popularity plummet quite dramatically, as a matter of fact. Polls show that fewer than 30% of Chileans approve of his government. Why is that? 
Yeah, so given Lula of Brazil made a comeback this weekend, I thought it worthwhile looking at the incredibly short honeymoon period for another leftist leader in the region. Yes, support for Chile's President Boric has fallen to 28%, according to a recent survey, as he struggles with a weak economy, uh, security issues and crime to the south of the country, and an increasingly frustrated electorate who voted for him barely a year ago. Um, Boric had promised serious social reforms across pensions, across education, um, and to improve social inequality in Chile. And nine months on, he hasn't managed to implement very much, in part because he lacks allies in Congress. And it appears he's running out of time to manage expectations, as we've already seen some fresh demonstrations. And at the same time, protests are reportedly building in the capital, Santiago, and this time it is high school students who are coordinating a fresh wave of demonstrations. Is that right? Yeah, so in recent weeks, as I mentioned, I mean, anger really at the lack of progress made to improve conditions in schools um, and the rejection of a draft constitution have led to protests among younger high school age students. Um, Boric, the president himself, uh, took part in university demonstrations to demand better conditions when he was a youngster that ultimately cemented his political career. But now a new generation is taking to the streets to rekindle similar demands. Um, These marches also come, obviously, after two years of the pandemic, uh, with pandemic restrictions, many students, um, you know, only having online classes. And that frustration is bubbling over as they find that, you know, very little has changed in that period. In fact, in some parts of the country, there's been an enormous increase in foreign student admissions in public schools, uh, mainly from Venezuela and Central America. The system is, is overwhelmed, some say. Um, there aren't enough teachers. Uh, students even spoke of rats in buildings at recent protests, um, just absolutely crumbling infrastructure. And this could become a, a serious issue for a leader who, as I say, has promised to improve these services and himself acknowledged that they were not satisfactory 10 years ago. Now, Lucinda, in the past, we've also been talking about the Chilean constitution process regularly. So in the referendum in early September, for example, the country roundly rejected a proposed constitution. What is the latest in that front? Will there be another constitution drafted? So Chile's politicians have been unable up until this point to reach any meaningful consensus on a new constitutional process. There is still broad support for a new constitution among Chileans. I think the latest polls showed at least three quarters of respondents want a new text. But these slow negotiations that have been going on since the draft was rejected on September 4th are partly a reason behind the dwindling support for the government. Um, Boric had backed the draft a proposal that was considered too radical for the average voter with around 60% of people who voted against it. And in Congress, the debate, the debate has now turned to, you know, should it be drafted by specialists this time? Uh, how many specialists versus independents elected by the public? Should they work from the current Pinochet-era constitution or the one that was rejected or start all over again? So big, big questions that are unanswered as obviously the more conservative members of parliament don't want to make life easy for the president and Chileans are rightfully frustrated that these officials really can't sort themselves out 
um, because, of course, this is all affecting investment in Chile, affecting the mining sector and, and what companies decide to do. Well, on a more positive note, Chile is making actually quite impressive progress with its green credentials. The country will start a green hydrogen public transport pilot next year as part of the country's efforts to become carbon neutral by 2050. What's the latest you can tell us about that? Chile has been focusing on on the country's environmental policy over the course of several administrations now, and a new fleet of buses will be powered by green hydrogen in a pilot scheme in the capital, Santiago. Um, Chile is actually aiming to have all of its public transport buses to be electric by 2040, and part of that is through hydrogen generated by renewable energy or or from low-carbon power sources. And the Environment Minister and other ministers are now on their way to the COP27 climate conference this week, Um, and Chile has actually been designated as a bridge alongside Germany to really foster conversations around around the energy transition. So, So yes, some positive news for the Andean nation. Lucinda, thank you very much. That was our Latin America Affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, and you are with The Briefing. And finally on today's programme, it's Thursday, which means that it's time for Fernando Augusto Pacheco's Global Countdown. Fernando joins me in the studio. Welcome to the programme. Why are you taking us this time round? Well, Marcus, for the first time, I decided to look at the uh, charts in Gabon. Uh, really interesting. I didn't know much about Gabonese music. And now you know uh, more. And now I know more, even though it, it is hard to find the information, but there's some really cool tracks. But at number five, actually, he's the only artist that is not from Gabon. In fact, he's from Congo. And, you know, it's kind of sad sometimes when I do the Global Countdown because sometimes there are a little bit of sad news about this artist. Basically, there was a stampede in his concert a few days ago, which killed 11 people in Kinshasa. Uh, He's a very, very famous musician. You know, he's from Congo, but he's big in Gabon, also in France. He's also a philanthropist. He's a really big artist. So it's a shame what happened, but I I had to report here. But shall we have a listen at number five? This is Fali Ipupa with Bloqué. Fali Ipupa there with a song that's number five in Gabon at the moment. What do you reckon he was singing about over there? I thought it was a really good track. Uh, the only word I could understand is hypocrite, which uh, hip- hypocrite. <laughs> I think this is a word that you know is very similar in a lot of languages. I wonder how, how is it hypocrite in Finnish? Hypocrite. What about in Portuguese? <laughs> Hypocrite. So it's all the same. See, we're we're always discovering new things. Um, and number four, uh, he is a rapper from Gabon. Uh, he just released. Uh, his first solo album called Banger Boy. Let's have a listen to the track. It's Eboloko with Waka Waka. <laughs> 
Difosia, le terrain est miné. Je rate pas mes paniers comme à vominer. la case, il a jolie. Direct, il est Pas parce que t'es mon grand que tu vas me dominer. Bon, ça, c'est le fait. N'ajoute pas le piment. Je te parle, si tu dis que j'ai le manquement. Ah, c'est quel sens, full au camp insolent. Un nouveau bangui, je vais te faire cavale au ciment. Bon, ça, c'est le fait. N'ajoute pas le piment. Je te parle, si tu dis que j'ai le manquement. Ah, c'est quel sens, full au camp well, that was another nice track. Yes, and it's interesting, I forgot to say, that Eboloko was singing this track with Liu A, a female rapper. Uh, and you will see, you know, uh, with the charts here, there's a lot of female rappers in, in Gabon at the moment, which I think is quite cool. And, you know, and, and they're all singing together. Uh, and But Eboloko is, is a man, just Do we have clarify. a female rapper, by the way, in the position number three, in Gabon this week? N- not yet, but we have uh, someone with a very cool name for an artist. He's also from Gabon, is Lozo rare which is uh the you know a ver- the rare bird uh and you know he's the darling of the gabonese urban scene at the moment i mean everybody's talking about him and even though he's from gabon he's based in cote d'ivoire mm-hmm. but he still loves his country so he's always performing uh in gabon but perhaps cote d'ivoire is a slightly bigger country with you know the, there's more opportunities in there as well would you be up for seeing loiseau rare live I would actually, because it's a very fun uh, dance hall tracks, uh, as this one at number three, Le Zorère with Fire I Wire. And was so rare there. I think I'm a dancehall fan, Marcus. I think uh, you may be more than myself. Yes, I, I, I think I quite enjoyed the beats. And I think at number two, he's back. Uh, it's a Loiseau Rare again. As I said, he's the darling of the music scene there in Gabon. Uh, but this track, I love the beats. I think it's a bit more up-tempo than number three. It's called uh, Jalour Mon Speed. I turn on my speed. <laughs> Comme si j'étais recherché par la base c'est, c'est vous les grands gens, c'est vous qui gardez les frontières Mais vous me demandez ce qui faut rentrer le dos Moi c'est quand j'ai les balabas que j'allume mon speed C'est quand je suis en bon que j'allume mon speed C'est quand je veux tout ma que j'allume mon speed C'est quand je veux... Oh, reste tranquille J'allume mon speed Shalom was the name of the song. I think I preferred this one to the previous track. And number one, I think you'll be your favorite, Marcus. But before we play a clip, I have to say it's a bit hard sometimes finding the lyrics for these songs. But I did find the, the lyrics for our number one song. It's confusing. Is it? It's the cat eats the butter. The gorilla does the makeup. The snake paddles the bicycle. Perhaps it rhymes very well mm. in the language of the song. And of course, this song became a viral on TikTok as well. Why did you think I would like it, by the way? I haven't heard it yet, obviously. I'm just wondering out loud now why you think this is going to be my favorite. Perhaps the sensual beats. And, and there's a sense of fun uh, as on the track. And, and everybody's saying that it's the return of Pablito Traductor. Uh, you know, maybe he's been away from the music scene for a while, but he is back with a number one song featuring Santi Love, and the track is called Li Li Li. <laughs> Lili, 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 lili,
You know, I think you were right. I think this was my favorite, an easy one for karaoke, Lili Li. Lili Li, a lot of vocoders and the cat eating butter. I need and to gorilla under- doing the makeup. And the snake paddling a bicycle. I need to understand this more, Marcus. You know, per- perhaps if a Gabonese uh, listener let me know, they'll be great. And Fernando's email address is fap at monaco.com. FP only, FP. there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Monaco's Fernando Augusto Paseco there. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>